Well, welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Alan Sanders, host of The Wilder Ride. I'm Walt Murray, co-host of The Wilder Ride. And I know yesterday we had sort of a softer intro, but we were really trying to kind of level set everything for this whole project. I know, Walt, you and I have watched or listen to the other collaborative projects that have been done in the prior years. So it's our first time at bat and kind of wild that we're up first. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he's throwing us to the wolves or well, he's kind of going, hey, this is the, the low end of the pool. <laughs> the other guys will be much better. You get the crap out of the way first and you let all the good stuff come later. Exactly, exactly. Get the, get the rubbish out of the way. <laughs> oh, the fools. <laughs> we'll give them the opening credits. Exactly. Classic movies, yeah. that's like the first third go. of the movie. No? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What kind of morons will take on the credits? Who takes on opening credits of a classic movie? <laughs> and then yesterday, I think we our goal was 25 minutes and we spent almost 50. Yeah. Well, it's just so, it's who we are. First of all, okay, that's not, that's not, that's us. Hey, we can't blame the, the movie or the format. Oh, no, it's not the movie it's, or the format. It's, it's totally it's us. It's the morons behind the mics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're like the mentally retarded cousins of Waldorf and Statler. <laughs> we're in the other booth on the other side going, hey. We may be a very direct relation. <laughs> all right, well, let's get into this. We've got more credits rolling here. And as we fade from the very last uh, credits we had yesterday, we immediately get more actors that are given some due. Uh, let me go ahead and just dive into the names, and then Walt, I know you've got a couple of highlights as we kind of go through. We're gonna we're gonna keep this kind of clipping along. Anybody has access to IMDb as we go through. If you want to check out their whole body of work, I, I, we don't want to bog it down here with with a litany of just their entire resume. You can go do that yourself. Yeah, and there's a lot on all these guys, and you'll see why in just a minute. All right, the next names we have are Adam Williams, Edward Platt, Robert Ellenstein. Les Tremaine, Philip Coolidge, Patrick McVeigh, Edward Binns, and Ken Lynch. Okay, so quick overview on, on these guys. Adam Williams um, lived from 1922 to, to 2006. A couple of his highlights were a uh, appearance in, in 1951 in the show The Rifleman, which is a great Western uh, TV show, which we have actually talked about on our past season of our show. Uh, and then in 1978, one of his last things was a show called Carter Country. And uh, Carter, Wasn't that a loosely based on Jimmy Carter? It was. It was supposed to be set in rural Georgia. Right. Uh, and I was just doing some reading this week on a book by a bunch of comedy writers that each comedy writer has a chapter and one of them pointed out that really sitcoms took off in the 70s under jimmy carter and it, no really relationship to him but there were several that were based kind of in rural georgia because of him you had the dukes of hazard and and things like that so uh, carter country is one of those it was about a black sheriff taking a job in south georgia so there's a lot of you know racial issues and things like that great show really really funny yeah great tie into blazing saddles that we did for our second absolutely. season absolutely absolutely so uh, Adam Williams had 177 credits. <laughs> so dive into that and see if there are any that you recognize. Uh, Edward Platt, um, he was he lived 1916 to 74, and uh, you're going to love this one. He was the the foil in um, Mel Brooks' Get Smart television show. So he played up against Maxwell Smart. Uh, he had 130 total credits. So a very accomplished actor. When you see his face on IMDb, you're going to be like. That, that guy. guy. <laughs> so you'll know exactly who he is. Um, Robert Ellistein, uh, 1903 to 2010. Uh, he was actually in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. 
He played uh, the council president who they were trying to assassinate, I believe. No, number four. He was. Oh, the, four. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, yeah, you're yeah, getting yeah. six four. mixed yeah, up right. with four. Oh, you have just turned the Star Trek minute and the guys at the Indiana Jones minute inside out. Well, and me too, because I'm a Star <laughs> Trek guy. So, And then he was on one episode of ER right towards the end of his career. Um, he played a doctor, an older doctor's mentoring some people. And his career spanned 1954 to 1998. So he had a good long run, 122 credits. Les Tremaine was in the movie The War of the Worlds. So he goes way back, and that is a fantastic Oh, the movie. Tom Cruise one. Uh, no, the, the good one. <laughs> no, oh, oh, okay. The good actual War of the Worlds movie that wasn't a parody of life itself. Um, <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't like the Tom Cruise one, did you? I was not a fan. Had some great visual effects, but I, I couldn't figure out what that movie was doing. Are you going to tell the big, wide action movie of what's happening in the world or just the small intimate story of the man and his fa- and his family. I think they had a term fi- and, hard time figuring that out too. And, and it kept going back and forth. It was too jarring. So I, I did not enjoy it as much as I was hoping I would. And I generally like Tom Cruise movies. I mean, he's a good actor, but that one just didn't land for me. Yeah, so. I felt the same way. I felt like it just, the tone wasn't right. It wasn't the yeah. acting fault. I think it was storyline. But the original War of the Worlds I loved. Still love it. I'd watch it if it came on right now. And uh, just a, a really good movie, particularly for its time. He was also Big Daddy Hogg on the Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> so that's really where I remember him. From. He was Boss Hogg's daddy. He was Boss Hogg's daddy, big daddy, <laughs> and he was a big guy by that point in his life. And uh, he had 132 credits. Um, Philip Coolidge lived from uh, 2008, uh, 2008, 1908 to 1967, and he was in a bunch of Hitchcock films. So um, I, I could go through the list, but he had 69 credits. And he was 58 when he died of a lung cancer. Ugh. So that was terrible, terrible loss. But a great actor, and, and Hitchcock loved him. Uh, Patrick McVeigh, interesting guy. He was an attorney before he became an actor, and he did uh, stage and, and film. In 1941, his first credit was the movie Sergeant York. Oh, great flick. Awesome, awesome movie. Awesome, awesome. And, and, and think about it, it's not one that comes to mind a whole lot for me, but it is one of the best World War One movies. It, it, it really is good, and, and it is based on a true story. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'll never forget sort of being, I say, forced. When I was younger, I didn't appreciate the war movies until I was a little older and then loved those times with my dad watching. But I remember being forced to watch it. I'm like, this is kind of dumb. We got this country boy, Hick, who's yeah. just in, uh, was he he's from Tennessee, right? Tennessee. Yeah, from Tennessee. Tennessee. And, you know, they show him hunting, and, they, and I didn't even think about how construction of a movie as a kid, setting all this stuff up about mm-hmm. how, what, a, what an agile hunter he was, how he knew how to use the terrain to hide himself. And then I remember that moment where he didn't want to go to war because he didn't believe that he should, because the Bible said you shouldn't kill. And I remember he had this conversation, I think, with an army chaplain, and he says, well, no, the Bible says thou shalt not murder. You're going out there to defend our country. You're not going out to commit malice murder on someone you're defending us against an aggressor, and that's different. And so he decides to go, and then I, and the, the movie gets to World War One when he like takes out a row of uh, German guns. soldiers. Yep. But he, well, the first time, what I was thinking about is he hits the last one, just like you'd realize right. when, when when you're going after wild turkeys, don't shoot the first one; they'll all scatter. Right. You shoot the one that's in behind; the other ones in front don't realize they've just lost the last man. And we're at the scene when he brings all the all those Germans that he captured back to the to the main base. And like, 
You captured all these guys? <laughs> Ism? <Yeah. laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to go down a Sergeant no, no, York tangent. I'll talk about that movie all day long. And great he's, he's a Medal of Honor winner. Yeah. Or awardee. I don't think you win that that award. But yeah, Sergeant York. If you've never seen Sergeant York, go see Sergeant York. Go, you know, with 1917, by the time this airs, 1917 will have just come out in the theaters. Right. Uh, I can't wait to see that. That looks fantastic. But I mean, if, up, until, up until this coming out in 1917... I think you're right. Sergeant York may be one of the best World War One movies that that's out there. Yeah, it just tells a great story. It, it really does. Um, and then he was also, it, he has a credit from 2019. He's been dead since uh, 1973. But he has a um, a credit for a documentary called um, The uh, the Frontier Westerns. And it basically, I haven't seen it. I will now. But it looks like it's just kind of the history of Western film. And oh, cool. He's one of the people that they talk about in there. And uh, but his actual final credit, 1973, um, "Bang the Drum Slowly," which I've never seen. Oh, I know the name of that I, movie. I know the name of it and have never seen it. Okay, so but obviously it's a solid career as well. Solid career. And then last two guys, real quick. Um, Edward Benz uh, lived from 1916 to 1990. He was in the original. He was juror number six in one of my favorite movies of all time, Twelve Angry Men, the 1957 version. The one with uh, uh, Fonda. Yeah, Henry yes. Fonda. Yep, and I, I mean that that whole cast is is tremendous. That's an amazing movie, and I love it because love it. I had a chance to be in a production of uh, the stage production oh. of Twelve Angry Men, and you realize it, it's it's the stage play and the movie are basically the same. The, the the movie allows you to kind of you want to move into a room or a bathroom or whatever, but mm-hmm. we it's a stage play, and it really does exist as a and, and it's all dialogue. And to watch a movie about guys who are so sure because of, a, of either a personal bias or because of the way things were presented. And all it took was one guy saying, well, let's just, let's just kind of hash out some of yeah, this information. This and I've never forgotten that impact it had on me watching it of going, oh my God, it's so easy to judge someone's guilt or innocence if you just rush to judgment. If you don't take your time to really pour through the information, That's you can right. make a critical mistake. Well, and I think that one of the key things out of that whole movie that, that I gleaned was never be afraid to find the truth and never be afraid to stand up for it. Yeah. And well, what I even like is later we find out that the main guy, uh, Henry Fonda's character, said, well, I was kind of convinced, too. I just felt we were going too fast. So I purposely said, no, let's just talk about it just to, just to force the conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so great movie. Uh, he had 180 credits. He was active from 48 to 88. So a solid 40 year career. And then finally, Ken Lynch. Um, he had he has 195 credits, but the one I'll point out is he was on Battlestar Galactica. Hey. So uh, I'll throw in my, uh, my the, the classic BSG, right? That's right. Oh yeah, no, he's on both. <laughs> really, he, he was he in the uh, the, yeah. re- the 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 uh, the the remade uh, reinvision the series, eighty whatever. No, that's when well, nineteen seventy nine or eighty is when the original Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I think it was seventy nine, and then Maybe. eighty they had that the 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 guys with the motorcycles that right, was a it was spin like off Battlestar eighty or something. yeah Battlestar yeah exactly whatever he was in both of those okay he, he had a recurring but he wasn't in the new ones that came new. out okay no no, no no he's in the good ones okay um, oh he will <laughs> no I think the, the the last one was good too I haven't watched through the whole thing I've I've got about ten episodes left 
So, but it is good for different reasons. So, anyway, uh, Ernest Lehman, who gets the written by credit, uh, he wrote. Oh, oh, yeah, already moving ahead. Okay, sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead to the next. uh, (laughs) Okay, the next screen here. Uh, Yeah, we've got. uh, So, yeah, that's the first three seconds of this minute. (laughs) Yeah, well, you're right. And I do like the way that this is imposed up against those windows. Right on the screen, that is a really cool way of flashing through these credits. Well, yeah, instead of it being a blank screen like your typical, and even then, when they first showed the grid, we talked about yesterday. At least that was somewhat interesting. The letters coming in differently, not just kind of fade in, fade out, or scrolling. We actually have, they're moving. But then when it fades into this minute, we talked uh, yesterday about how it started to show it's a building and cars. At least we get a sense of a busy city while we're yeah, reading these credits. Absolutely. It's really kind of a cool Almost way like to do it. Almost like setting the tone that there's a lot going on that we don't catch everything. Uh, th- this is true. Yeah, there's a lot going hmm. on. I want, we should keep that in mind as we move forward with this movie. Maybe we should. That there's a lot, maybe not even out- outside of your control, even though you're kind of seeing it around you, you're not paying attention. Okay, the movie makes sense to me now. <laughs> I told you yesterday, Cary Grant got a third of the way in. He's like, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on here. Like me and my wife. And, and Alfred Hitchcock was like, good. Yeah, I'm 51. I still don't know what's going on. So let's talk about the guy who wrote this uh, brilliant film, Ernest Lehman. Yeah, let me throw out there first uh, before we get anything else. <clears throat> this guy's got 25 credits, including the screenplay for a movie called Black Sunday. Do you remember this? That was the movie about the blimp that was going to. Yes, it, it was, was a terrorist attack uh-huh. against a Super Bowl, not a, a football game. I think it was a Super Bowl. And or, no, maybe the Rose it was Bowl. directed by John Frankenheimer. Yes. And I, here's my tie-in, I had a chance to be in a Civil War drama that was filmed by Turner Pictures uh, called uh, Andersonville about the Civil War prison, Yeah, directed right. by John Frankenheimer. I was in it the entire time, so I had a 90-day sh- film shoot listening to this old-school director. Wow. I mean, this is where we're getting, just when we're starting to get into the age of sort of PC, being aware of how you treat people, and this guy was like... Get that MF around the set. I don't give a damn. We don't got to fire him if he's not here. And he's just yelling and screaming at everybody. I was like, whoa. Uh, and then the other movie, the other you know big name that you would notice that he did is he wrote the screenplay on um, on West Side Story. Oh, okay. So, Which is getting a remake by Steven Spielberg as we yes, speak. It is. Yes, it is. So, uh, yeah, so a very compl- accomplished guy. And uh, I, I think that to me... Um, you know, I'm not in movies or anything like that, but I think this is a really well-written movie. It is. And what, with th- something you and I chatted about, but you know, we've, we've also talked about it in the context of the time, there's a lot of slowness in this movie in places that sometimes might drive our modern-day audience a little buggy. But to me, when you watch it and you think about it in the context of the time, the tension building in the audience, sitting there watching it, we don't make movies too much like this anymore, where you let no. the tension build. And I and I envy the guys and 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 actually I envy the folks coming after us the other movies by minutes broadcasters who are going to be talking about like the scene where he's dropped off at the crossroads of Highway 41 in the middle yeah. of nowhere that just goes on and on you think it's it's like well, what's what's going to happen next is is the next car his car is the next car the car why is anybody showing up who's that dude who's the guy that shows up across the yeah I love I love them taking those those moments to just let the story play out. And when you have, and I say this is a more modern movie, but I mean, it's got some age on it now too, but uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks, there are several scenes in that that have really good tension building, particularly one that always stands out to me is the one at the end where he's standing at the crossroad and he's looking all different directions to try to decide where to go next. And then the movie ends. It's that same kind of desolate, Mm -hmm. empty feeling, and yet it builds that tension that keeps you in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I think anytime you got somebody just sitting at a crossroads, it's sort of symbolic of do they know where they're going to go next? Yeah. What, what, where are they? 
whether it's an, a known decision or an unknown decision, you just realize they're trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah, it's like half of Bob Seger songs. Of like, where do I go? Where's my motorcycle half, going next? Half of Bob Seger songs. <laughs> I love where your brain goes. <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to figure. So, and then we move to um, Bernard Herman. Yeah, the music. Uh, by the way, the music in this is pretty good. It it's is definitely good. a score. There's a, there's a lot of orchestration, but it's designed to go with the scene. And so when it gets heightened tension, it gets much more shrill, and then it kind of stays quiet when it needs to stay quiet. The, the scene we're talking about in the middle of nowhere, no music. No, none. Just, just quiet, just, just sound, noise, wind. And I would love to know if that the was... The plane in the background. Yes. Well, and you, and you needed that because you needed to hear that coming. You know, you needed... But I wonder if that was a volitional decision on on the part of the music people who said, you know, good place not to have anything, or whether that was a directorial decision or how they kind of came to that. You know, I, I don't know. And that would be something interesting as we get further into the film, if other 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 podcasters, as they get their minutes, if they've discovered some of that research. I always wonder how much is the director saying, okay, you know, we don't need music here because we found out people like uh, Ridley Scott had a score for Alien written and then he didn't like half of it and he just replaced it on his own. And he had a guy that goes, wait a minute, where's my music? Where's where's the music I wanted for my for this movie? And right. So uh, directors do have ultimate control. In fact, we talked about it yesterday. He had the contract that said he had total control. So when the studio wanted him to cut it down, he was like, do I have to? No, I don't. Right. <laughs> so he didn't. So... I tend to be one who likes that. I want the director to have control. I, I, you know, well, if you're if the studio is saying that you're responsible for the overall vision of this project, you should have the final say on everything. I, I agree. I agree. And when you look at something like um, the last few Star Wars movies, I I get the sense that there's a little bit of both. That you know, the studio had some input. Probably well, Disney had some input. Let's remember, yeah, certain studios we've heard about where the producers actually in, interfere and force because they're higher up than the director on the sure. food chain. And then you're right, and then the studio in and of itself, they're yeah. the one funding it. That's right, and so they've got kind of an idea of where where they want it to go. So, um, but I, I really like the idea that the director and the the executive producer are the ones who are really setting the table. For the story and making the story goes where go where they want it to go, and you definitely get that sense in this movie that that's what's going on. Are you suggesting that Alfred Hitchcock had total control over all of his films? I am <laughs> suggesting that Alfred Hitchcock pretty much was the six hundred pound gorilla in yes. the room all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's eight hundred, eight hundred pound gorilla. In the room he was all the, the time. yeah, absolutely. But you know what? A guy like that deserves to have the the ability to call the shots. No so question. music, Bernard Herman. Um, what else did he score? Did you happen to pull up anything? Taxi Driver, hmm. which um, um, I, I really have mixed feelings about that movie. I'm not a big fan of it. I I tried to watch it again a couple years ago. I get just, why it's a classic. It has the lines that we all know. Uh, put Jodie Foster sort of on the map after doing Freaky yeah. Friday and yeah, you know right. sort of the lighter kid stuff. This was a heavier, heavier movie. Yeah, and she did a great job. I mean, and Peter Boyle's in it, one of my favorites. Um, you know, there's some there's some good acting. I, I don't know. I it just doesn't really hit it for me. I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't really like it at the end. That's no, definitely dark. Oh yeah. Well, the dark. end. It's not an uplifting ending. No, but you know you can have a dark ending and have a good movie. But I, I guess my expectation was so high when oh, I went in. Oh, had you thing. seen it a lot later? I saw it in college. Oh, okay, years ago, and um, and then just 
it had kind of faded, I guess. And uh, I kept going through. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this, forgot about that. I probably wasn't paying that much attention when I saw it. The other one he did is Vertigo. Oh, another good another, script, which yeah. had happened just before this movie. That's right. So so he, uh, he's he got some others. I mean, you, you know, go hit IMDb, but he's got a lot of, a lot, a lot of stuff out there. All right. Next credit we get to right at around second 19 of this minute. We've got director of photography, Robert Burks. Yeah, again, uh, he's done a ton of stuff. You probably want to jump on IMDb. You could spend the rest of your day looking at all the stuff he's done. Did you happen to see how many other Hitchcock movies he did? Uh, I forgot to take a look at that. Uh, Robert Burks, uh, Hitchcock must have enjoyed working with this guy. Uh, Some of his known movies that I have listed for him that he worked on were Vertigo, To Catch a Thief, Rear Window, Strangers on a Train, and uh, some others. Obviously, as we said, you can go to IMDb, but uh, Hitchcock must have enjoyed working with this guy. I thought the cinematography for this film was good. I, I, I love the camera placements. I thought, again, when we talk about yeah. tension setting scenes, seemed to had no had, had, had the one shot where we first see Cary Grant get dropped off in it in that desolate place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously are way up in a in a crane shot, and you're just sitting there, and it's not moving, and you're just sitting there going, "Are we focusing on the bus that's coming from that far away?" Yeah, and he just lets it play out and just puts the camera where it needs to go to catch what we want the audience to see. Well, one thing I did learn from being around the folks doing uh, Star Trek Into Darkness a few years ago was that J.J. Abrams and other directors tend to build a crew around them that they're comfortable with, and that that crew knows how he likes his cameras set and the lighting and um, you know everything else. So I'm sure when Hitchcock Hitchcock got comfortable with Robert Burks, it's like, okay, you're set for life. Yeah, when you're capturing the the images that you want and the way that you want them, then why why go to someone else? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little interesting trivia bit here, a little tragedy trivia for him. He actually died at the age of 58 in a house fire. That's crazy. How tragic. Yeah. So see, it can happen to anybody. Does yeah, that's, that's people bad. who are. I mean, this guy had uh, no, he was not, he, he he had a lot of money. He had, he was out in L.A., got uh, Newport Beach, California. Oh, beautiful area. All right, let's go ahead and roll to the next credit then. Uh, filmed in Technicolor, if you wanted to know that. That's uh, pretty typical for that time of year, or that, that, that time, that time of year. That time of year. Spring. Pretty typical <laughs> for the films of that era. Um, Technicolor is big in spring. We can go through this, and as I go through, if you've got anything interesting to drop, again, we don't want to bog ourselves down too much in this. Uh, the minutia is out there if you want to look it up. Your production was designed by Robert Boyle. Art directors William A. Horning and Meryl Pye. I will say as far as art directors go, they did a great job recreating places that they were not allowed to shoot in, including yes. the Oak Room, which was a closed kind of a gentleman's club. They were able to shoot. That's what we've in the, we're going to get to those minutes here later. Right. Uh, they also created the UN interiors. They were not allowed to film inside the UN for the for the scene that uh, happens a little early in the movie as mm-hmm. well. So and then the house uh, they wanted to look like a oh. Frank Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, architecturally designed home. Yeah, very cool house. They couldn't find one to use, so they just built one based on those sort of designs of a Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. And then the, um, of course, Mount Rushmore at the end. Uh, oh, well, well they, they kind of had a guide for that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, some of the visuals on that, making it look like they're actually fighting on Mount Rushmore, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, set decoration was by Henry Grace and Frank McKelvey. And special effects, which we do have some special effects in this. Like, these we would call practical effects. Uh, a biplane crashing into uh, a, a, a parked, via, or excuse me, a, a truck. Uh, a truck nearly running Cary Grant over. Yeah. Uh, there was some pretty cool visuals that happened in this movie for the time. So special effects, A. Arnold Gillespie and Lee LeBlanc. Titles designed by Saul Bass. Uh, moving ahead outside of the title designed, we go to the next batch of credits here. Right around 
second number 35. Uh, it's filmed in VistaVision, and I will tell you, they. it's ironic. Hitchcock was approached to use a different format that would allow him to have stereo sound in the theater, but he was so comfortable with using the VistaVision, VistaVision format, he stayed with it, which creates uh, a left and right mono track. Like, they record oh. a single audio track, and then they just, so it's the same on left and right. And I almost wonder if he was just a little nervous about new technology. Here's this guy who's got some cutting-edge technical effects visually, camera-wise and stuff, a little afraid for the audio. Could you imagine how we could have had some fun with audio happening on left and right side of the theater? In this case, the audio does go left and right, but it's a mono channel. Well, especially when the plane flies through, that would have been right. An interesting Moving from thing. ironically, in the remastered since then, they have gone back and made it a left to right transition. Oh, but in the huh. theater initially, it was a single mono track split then to left and right. Interesting, kind of like how we do our podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so split. Um, the film editing was fantastic as well. I thought they did a great job with that. George Tomasini and uh, color consultant was Charles Hagden. Recording supervisor Franklin Milton. Hairstyles by Sidney Gilleroff. Makeup by William Tuttle and assistant director Robert Saunders. Don't know any of those folks, but thanks for your work. (laughs) We appreciate you being involved in this movie. You're not worthy of any further discussion than that. (laughs) Away with them. Now, right around second 45, and we still have a few more credits, but I do like, and I almost feel like Hitchcock must have said, okay, Let's let's change the visual here, okay? Yeah. Let's 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 get the audience seeing some more of what's happening. So before we were sort of at, at you know the the ten thousand foot level, looking at a building reflecting down on the street. Now we are actually on the street as we have a dissolve here, and you're seeing a really busy. It looks like a either a it's either morning or afternoon. It, either everybody's going to work or or leaving for the end of the day. Right. But here's your typical New York uh, of this era, late fifties, early sixties, where uh, men are all wearing suits, ties. Some are still clinging to the hat. Uh, not everybody though. And uh, you see a, a mixed workforce as well here in New York. Yep, you do. And all the women are in dresses. A lot of the women are in hats. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my dad joined the FBI in uh, 1967, and his class was the first class that was not required to wear hats. They, You know, the snap brim mm-hmm. uh, or... Um, Whatever the other hat is called that you keep seeing. Well, just look the fedoras. The fedoras, yeah. yeah. You had to wear one or the other, and uh, this was the first class that was hatless. Which so. is funny because the old school agent that we'll, we'll get introduced to later, other folks will cover it, is still clinging to wearing the hat. White shirt, yeah. They were actually, Which makes sense because had he been raised when he was in the bureau, he would have yeah. worn a hat. So he oh, was yeah. still wearing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the white shirt, dark tie, dark suit. Um yeah. So, and you know, it, it, one thing that I found kind of interesting when you look at this is if you've ever worked in a building in a city, this could be any building in any city. Yeah. You know, and it kind of goes with that everyman motif that they are setting up here or the everyman trope that they're setting up here that this could be you or anybody else who you work with who goes through something like this. Right, right. Um, we do get a little thing here. Uh, usually this is now reserved for the end of the movie credits, but. We do get, I guess maybe Hitchcock was worried. Somebody thought this was based on a true story. Right. Because we get the events, characters, and firms. I think that's funny. Was it the CIA, FBI? (laughs) Law firms, hospitals. Yes. Depicted in this photo play are fictitious. Any similarity to actual persons, living or dead, or actual firms is purely coincidental. And I point that out because I don't remember many movies talking about firms. I don't either. And that's why I almost wonder, because the setup of what happens to, to Roger Thornhill is so believable, and we hear later in the movie about the agency that set up this sort of trap to catch somebody. 
I guess they wanted to make sure that this wasn't, they don't anybody thinking this was a true story. Because right. you could very easily see how this could be a true story. Oh, this could be a true story. <laughs> this could be a true story. <laughs> and I'm not going to bother reading the, the all the stuff at the bottom, all of the little uh, footer note or notes at the bottom of the screen about who approved the film and the recording system used and so on. So we uh, we scroll on by. Um, did you want to comment at all about some of the, the, the dress and the attire? I know we talked about everybody in suits and dresses. I did say it was a mixed workforce. We have a lot of diversity represented very quickly. Uh, I think you're right. It's a slice of Americana. We could be in any city. I, I, I kind of assume New York. But That's I just what I assume, too. I automatically go there in my head even before I had watched the movie and realized that is where it's set. But you're right. It could be any busier city, any metropolitan uh, city in America. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a a building in downtown Atlanta where one of my clients is that the front of the building looks exactly like that. And so I have a question for you. Right around second fifty, is this post Christmas or pre Christmas? When is this happening? I was wondering that too. It's it's because there's a Christmas tree there, right? It looks like it, or some kind of shrubbery. But just because it's on the very edge, and maybe because we're recording it during the holiday that season, may, all I yeah. kept thinking is like, well, why would you capture just an edge of what looks like uh, uh, some kind of a shrubbery or, or greenery? Um, there, nobody's wearing winter coats in New York, so it's probably not. But it is an interesting uh, little catch of the yeah, edge of the frame. That's true, and it is funny because you've got guys in kind of like lighter jackets and women in sleeveless dresses. So it, it's kind of hard to tell what what time of year it is. Right. Some women are wearing sweaters. Uh, every guy's wearing at least a coat for the most part. Uh, like you're right. Some some guys are wearing jackets and not. I think it's just one of those mixed bag of like, hey, just throw a bunch of extras in the yeah, scene and just go sure. with it. And and it really is just kind of like don't worry about what time of year it is. Don't worry about anything. And but it has to be. Five, I'm betting it's five o'clock because everybody's. Clear it feels now. like it must be end of day versus beginning. Although, once again, though, we could be beginning because we see everybody filing into subway stations here toward the end of the minute, and they're all diving to go down to catch their ride to wherever. So I'm, I'm assuming yeah. since we're in the city, it must be end of day. They're all catching the ride. That's out what I would assume to where too. they're wherever they're. Yeah. they're well, and home. he is he is headed to get a drink. So well, we don't find that out yet. It's well, not. Yeah, good point. We can't jump ahead. I know this format, and I'm. I'm busting it all to pieces. Uh, we get another shot. Not only are the subways running, we get buses running. And the very last thing we get is the associate producer of the film, Herbert Coleman. And actually, when Herbert Coleman's name pops up, for just the last brief second that we have of this minute, we are now down in the subway station itself, watching everybody sort of coming down and around, continuing their descent into this area wherever we're headed. So... It's going to be fun to carry this into the next minute to see, you know, this continuing a menagerie of shots of life at either the end of or beginning of the day of a major city. Absolutely. And uh, real quick, just to point out some things with him, uh, Herbert Coleman has 11, he has 64 total credits, but as a producer, he has 11. They include the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, North by Northwest course, Vertigo, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and uh, Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Well, he, that sure took a weird turn. <laughs> Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. So a bunch of Hitchcock stuff and then... How are you qualified to tell this quirky story about seven castaways? I worked with Alfred Hitchcock. You're hired. Perfect. <laughs> So you're and welcome. Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I don't think we can top that at this point. <laughs> Just sit right back and hear it. <laughs> so I thought I'd throw that one in for you. I knew you would enjoy that. 
Yeah. A tale of an unknown guy who is mistaken for an agent and he's not a spy. <laughs> wow, that is pretty good. I, I'm impressed. Yeah, I'm not going to do any more because at that point I'm going to crash and burn. Cut. And And scene. <laughs> cut, print, check the game. <laughs> All right, so uh, anything left in, left in this minute you want to chat about, Walt? No, I think we have covered it very well. Yeah, again, a lot of names. We may have glossed over some of them. Feel free to go through IMDb. It's always a little fun uh, exploration to see how certain people do work over and over again with certain either actors or directors. You know, in this case, Hitchcock, we talked about several of the folks he enjoyed working with with some of the other movies we know by him. So it's always fun to do that little IMDb rabbit hole exploration. It is. You can spend a lot of time there. Yeah, it's just like click here and then go here and then click here and then go here and then click here and then wait, where did my afternoon go? It may be the internet's greatest rabbit hole. Oh, no, I think YouTube is bigger than that. Oh, that's true. (laughs) YouTube is is the black hole. Yes. You're never heard from (laughs) again. Or Comedy Central or. All right. So uh, with that said, uh, before we, uh, before I'll give the final wrap up in just a second, why don't you let everybody know where they can find us? And uh, maybe tease our show coming up because we've got sort of a, a tie-in to North by Northwest. We do, we do. As you might have heard yesterday, we are about to uh, embark on a cross-country train ride on Silver Streak. Uh, that is a, a great Gene Wilder movie. Um, for the first time, he is is paired with one of the great comedians of all time, Richard Pryor. So. We're really looking forward to that. We've already covered uh, Young Frankenstein, the uh, classic 1973 horror monster comedy. 1974. 1974, shot in 73. And Blazing Saddles, also 1974. And uh, we are The Wilder Ride. You can find us at thewilderride.com. Uh, Facebook.com slash The Wilder Ride. If you do go there, you want to join, uh, you want to follow us first. And then it's going to pop up a little button that says join the group. That's going to take you over to our listeners group. You'll answer three real quick questions just to prove you're not a, a Russian uh, bot trying to throw <laughs> the election for somebody. And uh, then you join our group. No politics. You're joining the wrong group no, for that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Yeah, you're joining a heck of a group, but um, yeah, no politics, no no other stuff. Just a good place to kind of decompress and catch up on entertainment stuff and some great memes. And if you're interested in Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder and that whole gang, tons of stuff about that. And then uh, just a lot of stuff about us. So, and if you're interested in our back episodes, you can find us on any podcatcher or check out our website again, thewilderride.com. And all of our episodes are there. We have a couple of interviews, too. Uh, the great Beverly D'Angelo spent some time with us. And Burton Gilliam, who uh, was one of the key actors in Blazing Saddles, spent some time with us. So you want to check those out. So thanks for listening to the Hitchcock Minute. Don't forget, you can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Or you can go to HitchcockMinute.com. Social media, the man on Washington's nose is on Facebook. You can go to Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. Oh, and if everyone, come on back tomorrow, Wednesday, for another minute of the Hitchcock Minute. We will hit minute number three that will actually open with continuing a few more credits as folks are crossing Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street in Manhattan. And we're going to go all the way down to Roger Thornhill saying, I did? Oh, well, put something for your sweet tooth baby. We'll find out what that's all about. Can't wait to hear what that's all about. (laughs) Hey, at least we're getting into dialogue starting tomorrow. Absolutely. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back with more of the Hitchcock Minute. Featuring the Wilder Ride. Oh, that's right. We're the Wilder Ride. And more Battlestar Galactica references. (laughs) BSG. (laughs) I asked for classical. And the other show? And like, oh, yeah. I'm thinking the new one. You're like, no, the one with the motorcycles. Oh, idiot. (laughs) Idiot. You can always count on me. Bye, Mr. Thornhill.
wherever you are. The the retarded cousins of Waldorf and this and uh, what do you call oh, well, the Muppet guys? It's uh, Waldorf. Yeah, Waldorf and um, uh, Statler. The setup of what happens to Roger Thornbird, Thornhill. Better get that right. Which is Herbert? Oh, oh just Coleman. had it. Coleman, right? Yeah, Herbert Coleman. Yeah. We, God dang it! I can't hit pause fast enough. <laughs> On Friday, uh, we'll, we'll wait till Friday for that. And that listener should check out it. In closing, that's listeners. <laughs>